It is my honor this morning to introduce Christina Edmondson as our speaker. Dr. Edmondson holds a PhD in counseling psychology from Tennessee State University, a master's degree from the University of Rochester in family therapy, and a bachelor's degree in sociology from Hampton University. For over a decade, she has served in a variety of roles, including recently as the Dean for Intercultural Student Development at Calvin University. Within the higher education sphere, she continues to serve as an instructor and partners with several universities to develop ethical and impactful leaders. Additionally, as a certified cultural intelligence facilitator, public speaker, and mental health therapist, she's often contacted by churches to consult about leadership development, anti-racism, and mental health issues. Her writing has been seen and referenced in a variety of outlets, including Essence.com, YourBlackWorld.com, and Gospel Today magazine. She is also one of the co-hosts of the Truth Tables podcast. Please welcome me, uh, join me in warmly welcoming Dr. Christina Edmondson to CEA. wonder what, um, as children are developing, very young children, the importance of seeing faces. I often wonder how this particular season for us will, will shape and reshape their brains. That's the scientist and the mom in me that thinks of things. I will say this, that we all are having a reckoning. We all are being shaped and reshaped in some way by this season. So I uh, lived in West Michigan but I didn't grow up in West Michigan. I want to give you all this disclaimer. Okay? <laughs> I, grew up in, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, on the east coast of the United States. My parents primarily worked in Baltimore, but also in Washington, D.C., the land of, of politics. Uh, and they would catch the train back and forth from our city to the nation's capital sometimes, depending on what their work had assigned them to do. And I was raised by an educator. My mother is a, was a school teacher. And uh, I think once an educator, always an educator. Um, I, think, I think pastor's kids have a unique burden. I have two in my house. But I also think teacher's kids also have a unique burden, okay? I had, I had a lot of, Christina, I think you can do a little bit better. Uh, like, my dad was like, this is great. My mom was like, you can come up a little higher. So I'm, I'm grateful for that balance that they tried to show. And, uh, but, I, but I moved here uh, over, uh, over a decade ago to this part of the country, and I um, learned about Christian education. I know that might sound odd to some of you, but uh, where I grew up, that just was not really a thing. And then when I came here, it was like the thing. <laughs> it was the thing, y'all. Um, and it, it was, it was a, a place of strength, but it also was fraught. With, with a whole lot of um, growing edges and misunderstandings and maybe sometimes the implications of sin, right? I got the, the pleasure in shaping experience of working at Calvin University for about sev seven years. And um, since that time, I've moved back to Nashville, Tennessee. So y'all, this morning, I'm gonna say the word y'all several times, but 
Um, it is a very loving term. I invite you to embrace it in your own vernacular, y'all. Um, and I bring you greetings from my new, my new home in Nashville. Teaching with an agenda of love. Teaching with an agenda of love. Remember, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Tennessee's been on the news lately. It has been. Maybe you've seen the scenes on TV or had the burden of maybe being in the room. You witness parents yelling back and forth. Letters and emails coming because of buzzwords that were said in their students' classes. Buzzwords that now have reported meanings not assigned by the discipline that the words came from, but by one's favorite social media blogger or cable news source as defined. Poster boards loaded with partisan slogans. You see a frenzied, passionate state full of proof text scriptures misapplied and abounding in this polarized nation that we sit in. Using Jesus' name to do things our way. That goes back a long time. A polarized nation in which it has been our custom, y'all, to use children, whether they be in the womb, the classroom, or the courtroom, as our proving ground, our pawns in the game. Revealing to the world that's watching whether our theology is a fruit of our politics or if our politics are a fruit of our theology. What are you teaching our kids in that class? What's the big idea here? Who are you trying to turn them into? What's your agenda? What's your agenda? Do you feel that accusatory tone? What's your agenda? Feel it. Feel it in your body. But also reckon with an opportunity to revisit the purpose which is the fuel and the authority to humbly claim Christian teaching. What's your agenda? From the establishment of the United States, the question of who would be educated and what this education would include is a question that's moved from generation to generation to generation. Who gets to learn and what do they learn? The education of America's children has a long history, centuries old, of being fraught with exclusion, propaganda, and even violence. As someone who knows what it means to be the first black graduate who's generation X of an institution, that really shouldn't be so, y'all. I'm quite young. My children don't agree with that, but I think I'm still young. <laughs> Teaching the wrong person how to read was a crime. 
worthy of the skin being pulled from people's backs. I take education very seriously. Teaching the wrong person how to read was a crime that Christian abolitionists like Frederick Douglass knew too well. Teaching the wrong person that they have a right to learn had many girls and women, women proving their place in the classroom, even among female teachers. An issue that still works itself out today implicitly as gender bias informs speaking time in the classroom, grading practices, and our perception of unruly behaviors. Teaching the wrong person has us thinking and not thinking hard enough about how to create a truly inclusive classroom for those with learning and cognitive and physical diversity and disability. Who was meant to learn and who wasn't? Not only is there a legacy and consequences of pupil avoidance, meaning we're not meant to teach those people, there most certainly is the matter of the content avoidance and the overemphasis of mythologies rather than actual history. <laughs> to quote the often sung Hampton lyri uh, Hamilton lyrics, y'all seen Hamilton? Yeah. Pre-COVID, I went to see it in Chicago. It was, it was a thing. I saw it for one of my, my wedding anniversaries. But I'll not sing them, I'm gonna quote them, okay? We've had our singing time today. Uh, to quote the often sung Hamilton lyrics, let me tell you what I wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. Some of y'all know this like right now because y'all that die, you that die hard, you got it tattooed on you. You have no control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. And when you're gone, who remembers your name? Who keeps your flame? Who tells your story? Who tells your story? Who tells your story? Well, teachers, <laughs> they tell the story. They tell some version of it. That's what teachers do. The last great storytellers of the world. What story will you tell? The debates over what and whose history is taught in school has hints of the same passion and energy as who should even be in the same schools together. Echoes back to the 50s and the 60s. Maybe you don't know this, but I, I trained and served in higher ed, as mentioned, both as an instructor and as an administrator trained and served in historically black colleges and universities, community colleges, research institutions, and in Christian higher education. But before that, I was a therapist, a mental health therapist. And I worked with adults and children, people at times burdened by deep and pervasive emotional pain. Some of us find ourselves in this room today with deep, deep pain. Why wouldn't you have it? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 700,000 lives claimed to COVID alone in the United States. 
So there's a sadness, a lament, and maybe a bit of excitement in this room that I can feel today. And so when I met with people who were burdened by deep, pervasive emotional pain, some of that pain, a, res a residue of their trauma, it made them quite hypervigilant. You ever had a tough experience and it's kind of shaped you? And now you're on the lookout <laughs> for other tough experiences are coming? Well, we've been in a tough experience. This is a tough experience, shaping and reshaping us. It is a cultural trauma this very moment. And when people feel under attack, especially by something they can't control or hold on to, they maneuver and scrape together whatever little bit of social power they have to try to gain clarity and try to control any attempt to soothe their fears. So am I surprised that we're in a polarized nation? Nope. I am surprised, though, and saddened that the people who have reason to love and not fear are not proclaiming what they ought to proclaim. When I work with people like this, bound by fear with the residue of trauma, hypervigilant, trying to grasp for clarity, trying to grasp for control, they wanted and they needed to know from me as their therapist, what I thought about specific topics. They needed to size me up to make sure I was safe. Some of you have brains that are, you know, that are doing that right now. You're wondering, where is this talk going to go? <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not hidden. I'll show my cards. I'll tell you my agenda. In some ways, they were stuck, unable to move, unable to go with me where I was trying to lead them until I verified some things for them. They had certain litmus tests. They needed me to express how I was relatable to them. And if they were not met, they held back. They needed signals, signs. She's one of us. She's one of us. And so when people are afraid, they're gripped by cultural trauma, even if they deny it and act like it's no big deal, they reach out and they cling for and they demand that you declare yourself so they feel safe in what they think is commonality. You know, we don't learn just for the sake of learning. I know that's an enlightenment view. We can look at ancient Greek philosophers who proposed that thought. But Christians, we're warned about being puffed up by knowledge, that knowledge itself is not salvific, that knowing is not the same as saving, that knowing is not the same as virtue, and that knowing doesn't always produce the fruits of transformative, redemptive behaviors. We learn on purpose, and we learn for purposes greater than our own. What is the reason for your learning? What's the reason for your agenda? 
to claim Jesus as a descriptor, to claim Christianity as a descriptor, Christian school, Christian university, Christian shoe company, Christian bakery, Christian camp. What does that mean? Minimally, one must be fully in awe and reverence of Christ as to not participate in the breaking of the third commandment, taking God's name in vain, attaching it to agendas, to self-promotion, and maintenance of social power. I've often heard it quoted that the truth will set you free, but not before it makes you real mad or lamentful or angry or avoidant. John 8, 32. So he said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Christian teachers cannot claim neutrality. We're not neutral. I'm not. Over issues of justice, social and personal piety. Nope. Both sideisms don't work. <laughs> Avoidance doesn't work. If the people who claim Jesus as their organizational descriptor won't tell the truth about our present moment, about our history, about reality, they can't take the temperature in the room, then that descriptor is a miss or a worse counterfeit. What makes an education Christian? What makes an education Christian? Is it the proclaiming of faith in the classroom? Entrust yourself to Jesus for he cares for you and has given all for you already. Is that what makes an education Christian? Is it the fencing of the space to certain representations, sociologically speaking, of Christianities in America? Only certain expressions of Christianity in this place. And which one are you articulating? Is it the practice of faith through Christianity, meaning, meaning our methods, our pedagogy. For believers, that means that the means of learning matter more than the outcomes of learning. See the cross? See the cross? On Friday night, those methods weren't successful by worldly standards but they were necessary. Christ's methods, his life and sacrifice as pedagogy to plant the seeds of the resurrection that would come Easter morning, that has come now. Our means matter. So what is your agenda? What's your big idea as to why and how you teach as representatives of Christ? What is the witness of your teaching as communicated out in your tone, your presence, your use of self, your references, 
the stories that you tell, whose story you tell, what you leave out of <laughs> the stories that you tell. Where is the orphan? Where is the widow? Where is the sojourner, the imprisoned, the left out, the, lo the locked out, the looked away from in the stories that we tell? Our agenda, if we are to be Christian, not merely as a descriptor, our agenda must be love, love. And I gotta tell you, love doesn't always feel comfortable. I say that because, particularly in this part of the world, there is a real obsession with comfort. <laughs> There are ministries and there are schools that make entire decisions about the comfort level of one or two people. The comfort of one or two donors. The comfort, maybe of somebody who's not even alive anymore. The comfort of a ghost. <laughs> Love is not just a feeling We've got to put weight on love as our motivation. Love is necessarily truthful, necessarily truthful. I've been teaching around the country as I've been able to travel more and certainly virtually. And every time I get in a room full of leaders, I make it a point to say this. It doesn't matter what my topic is. I'm going to tell you all right now. I make it a point to say to them how I'm so grateful for my early education teachers who emphasize the importance of primary sources. I know oftentimes we want to read someone else's interpretation of someone else's interpretation, but my early education teachers would say, that's lazy, y'all. And if you're going to disagree with somebody, you should read them in their own words, because that's dignifying to who they are. We represent the religious tradition that not tolerates our enemies. We love them. Love looks like reading people in their own words instead of taking the bait given to us by cable news about how to feel about our neighbor when Christ has already told us how we have to feel about our neighbor. Love. Love. So primary sources, y'all. You really want to understand something? Read the primary sources. Remember, you beautiful storytellers, find those primary sources again. It's necessarily truthful, love is. Yet it is filled with transformative hope. Transformative hope. That is our distinction. We are the people wild enough to tell the truth about ugliness, about pain, about suffering, about injustice, about brokenness, about our own lives, our own fears, and yet still cling to hope because hope clings to us. If we don't do it, who will? Love, 
Love as our agenda makes us necessarily humble and charitable because we know that we don't know. We know that we don't know. There's so much that we don't know. And yet that doesn't have to be the burden that weighs us down or causes us to pretend because we've entrusted ourselves to the one who knows all things. So we can have humility. Love is necessarily clarifying and centering who God centers. Who does God center? We must center who God centers. And we must center who God center, even if with tears in our eyes as we watch rich young rulers walk away. We must center who God centers, even if rich young rulers walk away. Entrusting them to the God who has told us that nothing is impossible for him. First Corinthians 13, four through eight. Love is patient. I imagine my early education teachers in the room understand that. The masterful teaching of pre-K and kindergarten teaching. Oh, the beauty of it. Experiential learning that helps the child to love learning, even before they can spell it. Love is kind, teaching, teaching the ethics of community. It does not envy. It does not boast, because it don't have to prove itself. It's not proud and haughty. It does not dishonor others. It uses those primary sources again, y'all. It's not self-seeking, because the church and organizations that are a fruit of the church don't have to be self-protective. Do we protect Jesus or does Jesus protect us? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ just might be the only institution that doesn't have to be selfish in this world. It is headed by the one who gave himself up for us and his is the model that we follow. Love, it's not easily angered. Y'all, the bitter will break. Aren't you tired of being angry? I'm actually tired of being angry, actually. Although I've got some good reasons to be angry. I really do. It's not meant, we're not meant to stay in that place, you know? You're not meant to stay angry. Return to those primary sources so that you won't just have in your ears people who are committed to you being angry consistently. It'll wear you down. And you'll break. 
And the very first thing that that fatigue will take away from you is empathy. Love keeps no records of wrongs. It's forgiving. But forgiveness requires truth-telling. There's so many debts that we can't even forgive because we won't even name them. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, even truth that tells on us. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails, although it may fail by worldly standards, but by kingdom standards, it never fails. But where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. But love will stand. You want a legacy like the teachers that stood before us for 35 years? Let your agenda be about love. You want to make it past your first year? And man, to the first year teachers, I see y'all, because this has to be a heck of a year to be a first year teacher. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I would like to say that it gets better. I hope it does real soon for you. But let love be your motivation. You've been tried in the fires for sure. You want students like me who can remember the words that you said? Maybe not even the subject material, to be honest. But the way that you stood before them. The way that you noticed bullying and you stopped it the way you saw something in them that they hadn't seen in themselves, and then they grabbed that dream, that vision for themselves. The way that you reminded them that they can learn, they can get it, they can persist. That is the legacy of love. And that has to be the agenda of our teaching. So I encourage you today to stay soft, stay tender, stay flexible. Don't harden by the hardness of the moment because the bitter will break and empathy will go first. Stay loving because after the mathematics content, which is very important, and the chemistry content, which is very important. And the social studies content, that's real important for the social scientists. It will be the love that they remember. That is the agenda of a Christian teacher, love. Thank you for letting me be with you this morning. And I pray God's love and mercy on you.